0: Well, this morning we are going to be in the Psalter, and I'm really grateful for our music team who led us in a preview of Psalm 96 this morning, and so I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles as uh, we revisit this Psalm and read the actual text of this Psalm from God's Word together. As you're turning to Psalm 96, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of Scripture. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of God. May he impress its eternal truths upon our hearts. Please be seated. Blissfully unaware. That's how my wife, Kelly, would probably... Describe me in the middle of the night. I tend to be a fairly uh, deep sleeper. I've been told uh, that one or more of our children will often come into our room in the middle of the night, needing to go to the bathroom, or having had a bad dream, or having gotten a bloody nose, or you know, just needing uh, a word of comfort. But if Kelly didn't tell me those things, I probably would have no recollection you know, when when I'm out at night. I'm pretty much out, blissfully unaware. Well, maybe you sleep like me. Maybe you don't. But I think we all experience this kind of blissful ignorance in some way. Many of you probably feel it living here in the Bay Area, especially here in the South Bay. It can feel like we're living in a bubble of electric cars and organic food and clean parks and good coffee, exceptional weather. I guess not counting the heat wave the past week, but generally life is good here. We live in a in a land of bliss, often unaware or sheltered from what's happening outside of our narrow experience. And this kind of living can begin to creep into our view of God. We can begin to think of him as the God of us, the the God of the Bay. We can associate his blessing with purchasing a home in the Bay Area or tasting something new or getting into a good school or joining the right company just the right time or seeing your business or your team or, or your church even grow. And don't get me wrong. These are all blessings from God, but, but I fear that sometimes this can become all that we think of when we think about God. The material abundance around us can sit on top the spiritual riches that we have in Christ as believers, and we can live in a kind of bubble of earthly bliss. We begin to just think of God as the God who brings salvation and also material blessing to me and to my friends and my community instead of the God who is much greater, the God who is active and working throughout this vast world. To think of God as just being our God in our place, is a natural tendency that many of us have. We, we may understand conceptually that our God is a global God, but in reality, we think more of God is just the God of us. Israel was also tempted to think this way. They were God's chosen people. They were his nation. And, and many times in the Old Testament, we, we read of their battles against other nations who did not honor God Psalm 2 talks of how the, the nations raged against the Lord and his anointed. There are oracles of, of judgment concerned against other nations throughout the prophets. Jonah is a classic example of all this. He, he ran away when he was called to share of God to the people of Nineveh. He wanted to keep the compassion and, and the care of God in-house. He didn't want to see it extend to pagan people beyond the borders of Israel. But our God is much larger than our locale. He isn't confined to any place. He, he isn't limited to a certain subset of people. No, our God rules and reigns over all the earth. And that is one of the reasons that missions exists. If God is indeed the ruler of all, he is meant to be worshipped by all. That's why Jesus told his disciples at his ascension in Acts eight. And you will be wit- my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As a church, we, we need to be reminded of this often. It's far too easy to live a blissful Christian life in the comfort of the Bay Area. Protected and sheltered and ignorant of all the needs around us and the rest of the world. Our spiritual myopia needs constant correction. We need to go back to the word of God and and let it serve as our spiritual optometrist. We need to let it correct our vision regarding how God wants us to see him and his relationship with us and his relationship with this world. And that's why we have a mission Sunday every year. We we want to keep the great commission at the forefront of our minds. We, We don't want to remain blissfully unaware to sleep through the night without any inclination to help those in need of the gospel of Christ in this world. So we're going to go to the Psalter this morning for a vision checkup. Specifically, we have an appointment in Psalm 96. Okay, if you haven't done so, I do invite you now to navigate your way there in your Bibles. In Psalm 96, we find a song of praise to God, which reminds us that he is not just the God of Israel, but he is the God of the nations. Psalm 96 occurs in a grouping of psalms that praise God for his kingship. Psalms 93 to 100 are often called theocratic psalms because they declare how the Lord reigns. These are psalms written to praise God for his rule. And, and we don't know exactly when this particular psalm was written. There's an old superscription uh, that seems to indicate the final version of this psalm was written after the exile when the, when the people of Israel returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. But the majority of the psalm was actually around by the time of David. And that's because we, we find most of this psalm quoted in 1 Corinthians 16. Now that ta- chapter describes the time when David offered up a, a song when the ark of the Lord was brought into the tent that David had made for it in Jerusalem. It was a time of great rejoicing. It was a time of great celebration for Israel. So even though it's hard to pinpoint exactly when this psalm was composed, we know that it was sung during times of great joy. It was a psalm that was likely sung at the festivals of Israel. And it is a psalm about the God of glory coming to rule and to judge, which means that everyone should worship him. If you glance at Psalm 96, you'll notice that it has three stanzas. Verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 10, and verses 11 to 13. Each of these stanzas begin with a call to worship God. And then they provide reasons why. Now this is a common way that many of these psalms were composed. If you look at Psalm 95 right before, it's written in a very similar manner. But there's something that stands out. About Psalm 96, you'll notice in this Psalm that it's not about Israel. It's written to be sung by Israel, but there's nothing really Israel specific in this Psalm. The closest thing that we have is the reference to courts in verse eight, perhaps that's the temple courts. But overall, the sense that you get when you read this Psalm is that though it may have been intended for Israel to sing, it is song about God being worshipped among the nations. In verse 1, it says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Verse 3, declare his glory among all the nations, or among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Verse 9, tremble before him all the earth. Verse 10, say among the nations. Verse 11, let the earth rejoice. Verse 13, the Lord comes to judge the earth and the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is a praise song. But it's got a missionary heart. It's a song to remind Israel that God intends to be worshipped by all the people of the earth. And, and, and it's that missionary intent that I want us to lean into this morning. We're not going to walk through this psalm stanza by stanza because there's a lot of overlap and emphasis. But there are some overarching themes that I want to point out to you. And these themes relate to the work of missions. In fact, there are three motivations for missions that I want to direct your attention to. Okay, these three motivations help us to understand why it is so important, imperative even, that we look beyond ourselves to declare God's glory among the nations. First, notice with me that we should pursue missions because of our worship of our God. Okay, the first motivations. For missions is to pursue missions because of your worship of our God. A desire for missions naturally arises out of a heart that is worshiping God. We see this in the first few verses of Psalm 96 and also in verses 7 through 10. But look with me first at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist writes, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord, all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name. Three times the command to sing to the Lord is issued. It's a command to all the earth. And here the word earth means all the peoples of the earth. This is a command for all the peoples of the earth who have experienced the salvation of God to sing to him. But specifically, they're to sing a new song. What does that mean? Certainly it could mean that they're to compose new songs and sing them in praise to the Lord. That's appropriate. We've benefited as a church from many songwriters of the past and the present. But that probably isn't the emphasis here. The goal of the psalmists when they composed their songs was was not to bring attention to the new songs they were writing. Rather, the the psalms were to direct the focus of the people of God to God himself. And so the call to sing a, a new song is more likely to call to sing about the new things that God himself has done. In 1 Chronicles 16, when, when this parts of this psalm are quoted, that new thing was God bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Here in Psalm 96, it is the fact that God is going to rule, not only over Israel, but over the nations as well. And, and God is always doing a new work. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And so we have a new song to sing as well. Old, familiar hymns can be sung as new songs as we think about how God is working out the truths of those hymns in our lives today. Now, this evening at our church's 40th anniversary, we're going to be singing a couple old hymns. Great is thy faithfulness, and be thou our vision. And these are classics that you have probably sung dozens, some of you have maybe hundreds of times. But in light of our celebration of what God has done at our church over the last 40 years, and as we look forward to what God is going to do, hopefully we will sing those songs of praise in a new way tonight. And true praise of God manifests itself in our lives when we recognize all the old things that he has done along with the new things he is doing in our lives every day. The psalmist reminds us of this. He writes at the end of verse 2, tell of his salvation from day to day. The word tell means to bring good news. You might even say evangelize. All of you Christians today have a new song to sing. You have experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ for your sins and you continue to experience the grace of that salvation sustaining you on a daily basis. The psalmist is, is telling you to think about that. Think often of God's mercies in your life and let those mercies motivate you to tell about his salvation to others. That leads us into verse 3, which says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. True worship and praise of God leads laterally to declaring the glory of God among the nations. It leads to sharing about all the marvelous things he has done. And this psalm teaches us That our worship shouldn't just be private. It's not something that we just do in a room by ourselves. It's not something between us and God only. Worship is to be done with the community of God's people. It's meant to be done in the church. And it's meant to lead us to want to witness to others about the majesty of God and all the wonderful things God has done for us. You ever come into church thinking about that? That I'm going to sing with God's people today, and not just to declare God's glory, but to be motivated by the praises of the saints to go out into the world and declare his glory to others. It's like going to a game for your favorite team. You know, you can watch the game at home by yourself. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But when you go to the Chase Center to watch the Warriors, or you go to Levi Stadium to watch the Niners... There's a bond that you feel with other fans, right? There's this enthusiasm for the exploits of the, the, the athletes that somehow melds with, with yours, and you are often stirred to fervent, passionate praise. And when it bubbles over, you bring out your phones, and you capture the action on the court or on the field, and then what do you do? You pan to the crowd response, Right? And then maybe some of you share it on social media, or at least when you go back to school or you go back to work the next day, you share it with your classmates, you tell about it to your coworkers. And that is the idea here in the first three verses. As Christians, you have been given access to see the God of the universe at work in your life. You've been given a, a subscription to YouTube TV or to Sling or to FUBU TV or whatever it is, right? And there, there are no blackouts to this game. You aren't blinded to the reality of what God is doing, but you aren't just meant to watch that game on your own. You get to come to church on a weekly basis to join with others who are also seeing God at work in their lives. And you get to sing together. And, and this communal praise is meant to not only bring God glory, but it's meant to motivate you to declare his glory to others. Worship really is the goal and the fuel of missions, as John Piper has said. Your salvation should cause you to worship God, and your worship of God should cause you to want to share about him to this world. This is what we see reiterated if we skip down to verses 7 and 9. Here the call is to ascribe or to give the Lord glory and strength. It's another call to worship, and it's directed to the families of the people. This is already another reference to the nation's, Africans, South Americans, Indians, Asians, Arabs, Europeans, you name it. They're all included in this call to worship. All people have the opportunity to worship the Lord. And they are called to bring an offering and come into his courts at the end of verse 8. Verse 9 says they're called to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That phrase, splendor of holiness, can be translated holy attire. It has the idea behind it of approaching God in in holiness, wearing garments that are clean and acceptable in the sanctuary. And this tells us that the nations must be prepared to carefully enter into God's presence and there to tremble before him, not not quaking in fear, but quivering with delight and respect. It's a sacred, joyful awe. And again, at the end of verse 9, this is a call for all the earth to worship. It's an invitation for all peoples to bring appropriate worship to God. And this worship again overflows in the declaration of God's glory and reign. Look at verse 10. Say among the nations, let your worship lead you to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The glory and the reign of God are meant to be declared throughout this world. That is missions. And it's motivated by our worship of God. So remember God's mercies in your life and let it cause you to worship. Let them cause you to worship God with others. But as you worship, don't forget that others are meant to be brought into this worship and into the praise of the God of heaven as well. And let that realization stoke your desire to declare the glory of God throughout this world. Pursue missions because of your worship of our God. That's the first motivation for missions. Second, you should pursue missions because of the superiority of our God. Pursue missions because of the superiority of our God. These next two motivations will go a bit quicker. We'll notice this in uh, verses 4 to 6. The psalmist states that the Lord is great and he's to be feared above all gods. Why is that? Well, it's laid out for us in verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Many of you know that the most common word for God in Hebrew is Elohim. And the Psalm uses, psalmist uses that word at the beginning of verse 5 for gods. But he uses another Hebrew word for worthless idols, and it's the word Elalim. El-elim. And what the psalmist is doing in Hebrew is making a play on words. He's saying the, the Elohim of the peoples are really just Elalim. They're worthless. They're, they're nothings. They're, they're non-entities. The gods of this world, whether they are the ancient idols of, of wood and, and precious metals or the modern mass-manufactured ceramic figures of Buddhism and Hinduism, they're impotent. They do not deserve our praise. They are not like the Lord who made the heavens. They aren't characterized by, like him by, by true splendor or majesty or, or strength or beauty. The psalmist has no respect for the false religions of this world. Because the gods of these religions can't do anything. They can be created, but they cannot create like the God who made the heavens and earth. Of course, today, many of the people of the world believe that they are a bit more sophisticated than that. Their gods can do something. The god of sex can provide pleasure for a moment. The god of money can buy excitement for a time. The God of science can bring the joy of discovery and sense of progress. God of power can make one feel strong for a while. but, But even these gods, these idols, which can be good and useful in their proper place, are powerless to bring the salvation that we all need. And so verse 5 reminds us that this world is in desperate need of the God of heaven. People need to know their creator. They need to know how to be reconciled to him. He is the Lord who reigns. Skip down and look at verse 10 again. You'll notice that the psalmist writes, Say among the nations the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Because we have a God who actually reigns, we can rest In the fact that he is in control of this world. There's no need to be anxious. God is ruling over this world. He isn't some worthless, powerless idol. The nations will rage and the kingdoms of the the world will totter. We continue to witness this today. War in Eastern Europe. Tensions in Asia. Instability in Africa and places like Myanmar. Collapsing regimes. But God still reigns. And while we are sheltered for the most part from the worst of these conflicts here in the States, we cannot forget that there is a world out there which desperately needs to know that there is a God who reigns. There's a God who's in control. There's a God who will establish this world in righteousness again one day. And that's why it's a privilege for us as a church to be Supporting missionaries that are serving in parts of Asia where there is uncertainty and a sense of hopelessness in society. That's where we're We're honored to give to to ministries in Ukraine that are able to preach the news that there is still a Lord who reigns despite the ravages of war. That's why we're happy to help when when a church is vandalized due due to unrest in Myanmar. Because when there is no recognition of the rule of the God of heavens, there will be turmoil. The the earth will feel like it's moving because men and women will trust in gods and idols that are powerless to save. So we must say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We, We must tell others that there is a God who made the heavens and a God who redeems us from our sin through his Son so that we might go to heaven. We have a God. Who's powerful enough to save and to direct the events of the history of this world toward his final plan? Some of you need to consider going to the nations. I know not everyone here is called to that specific work, but all of us here at Redeemer must consider how we are to be involved in that work. Whether it's praying or giving, or loving or encouraging, we should be involved somehow. Are you involved in any way? in the work of missions. Because we have a better answer than the false, worthless religions and philosophies of this world. We know the one true and living God who reigns. Pursue missions because of your worship of our God and because of the superiority of our God. The last motivation that I want to mention from this psalm is that you should pursue missions because of the coming of our God. Pursue missions because of the coming of our God. At the end of verse 10, we read that God will judge the peoples with equity. That speaks to his coming judgment. God is coming again. And that's what the final verses of this psalm lead us to think about as well. Sorry about that. Testing. There we go. That's what the final verses of this psalm lead us to think about as well. Verse 11 says... Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Why? For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. All of creation is called to praise because God is coming. He is coming to judge. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. As the holy God of heaven... He will determine who has met his righteous standard and none of us is going to measure up on our own. But those who have come to trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be saved. We will be delivered. And this will be a great day because we will experience the perfect reign of God. We will experience the peace and the blessing that he has promised to us in his word. If you're not a Christian, please know that God desires... For you to be saved, He's not happy with you right now because your sin is offensive to Him. But He wants to be reconciled to Him. And you can come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for your sins and died to reconcile you to His Father. When He comes, God will bring deliverance and restoration to all His people. But when He comes, He will also come with vengeance. Judging the world in righteousness and faithfulness means that God has to uphold his holy standards. And so, while these final rem- verses remind us that the nations can still trust in the Lord, they put pressure on us as believers. There's a deadline approaching, and we've got a, we've got a project that we've been assigned to. It's to declare the glory of God here in the Bay Area, yes, but also to the nations, So that when God comes, many from the nations will receive him with joy and not terror. Maybe the thought has crossed your mind what about COVID? How do we do missions now? Certainly, COVID has made it difficult to travel, but things are beginning to open up again. And we have seen time and time again in the history of modern missions that major advances in gospel work around the world come during times of crisis communist revolution in China, the Korean War, the AIDS epidemic in Africa, the fall of communism, Eastern Europe, the Arab Spring uprisings. They were all times of turmoil in this world. But they often led to more missionaries being sent out, or they led to the work of missionaries being established and strengthened by local Christians they had discipled. COVID has made travel difficult, but it's also made it easier for us to communicate in certain ways. Certainly reminded people of their mortality and perhaps also the unstable nature of this world under sin. We can trust that God will use even this period of world history to bring about his plan, but we still need to be faithful and remember that he is coming to judge this world. We're to pursue missions because of our worship of God. That should lead us into missions. We are to pursue missions because the greatness of our God should compel us to it. And and because his coming again will mean the judgment of all nations. I want you to notice one last thing from Psalm 96. And just notice how this psalm crescendles. In verses 1 to 2, believers are called to sing. Then their song is meant to lead to a declaration of God's glory among the nations in verse 3. Then in verses 7 to 9, the nations themselves are the ones worshiping. They're the ones bringing their offering into the courts of God. And finally, all creation is called to worship. And the verbs, notice them in verses 11 and 12, are jubilant. Be glad, rejoice, roar, exult, sing for joy. And that's because the God of glory is coming again this is reason to praise for all creation will flourish under the righteous reign of God. This is where we're headed. To the worldwide worship of the God of the Bible. In this psalm, the psalmist calls Israel to extend its vision beyond its borders. And as the people of God today, we too must extend our vision. Our God is not just the God of the bay. Not just the God of of the USA. He's the God of all. And as those who know his salvation, we must not forget that there is a world out there that needs to know that there is a God who reigns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we We praise you for your mercies in our life. We praise you for the salvation that you have given us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we praise you that you will be coming again to establish your reign of righteousness and justice and peace. But in the meantime, Lord, help us to be faithful. Oh, help us to declare your glory among the nations. We pray this in the name of your Son who came to die for the nations. Amen.